Hey y'all, this is Culture Soup, where tech, culture, and business collide. It's a podcast that spoons up everything hot from social media. I'm your host, L. Michelle Smith, and each episode, we bring you some of the most notable and not yet notable thought leaders in tech, business, and culture. I would grab my little girl and my big sister, get in the car, and head downtown to a big conference hotel where I would keynote at the opera conference. As it would turn out, the company where I was working had a major sponsorship with the Performing Arts Center. As a result, the Opera America organization reached out and asked for the chief diversity officer to speak. Well, you may know her as Sint Marshall. She's now the CEO of the Dallas Mavericks. Well, Sint couldn't fit it in her schedule. So my colleagues over in sponsorship contacted me and told me that they needed someone to speak on diversity and inclusion as a part of their global conference. They looked at my schedule. My boss said yes, so I went. And there we were, headed downtown. And we arrived, and such a warm reception. The room was full of about five to 600 people. And there I met Mark Skorka, the CEO of Opera America. After giving us a few instructions, it was time. There were about four of us, and each of us keynoted on a specific topic, took the stage, and then afterwards, there was a panel that discussed what we discussed. It's a plenary format, if you're not familiar. Well, I can tell you that that was probably about the fourth time that I had delivered this specific keynote, and it was five keys to inclusion marketing. In this keynote, I make the statement, social media is culture soup. As you know, that is the name of this podcast. That keynote got such a rousing and raving um, reception that Mark hunted me down for the next several months. And if you recall, this was the beginning of my marathon speaking tour that hasn't ended yet. So it was hard to connect with Mark, but I noticed that he was so determined that it probably would make sense to at least arrange a call. You see, Mark is all the way up in New York City and I'm in Dallas. So for him to say he wanted to have lunch and he was going to actually meet me in Dallas again, let me know that there was something cooking. So we arranged a call. We got on that call. Mark asked me something pretty special. He asked me to be on the board of Opera America because I revealed at the end of that keynote during a Q&A that I'm a professional singer, not that I sing opera. I do not, so don't assume that. I actually sing all sorts of other genres, but because I am a singer and I am in the arts, And I have a keen sense of communications and how inclusion can be ushered in 
to any organization through its marketing outreach as a gateway. He wanted me on the board. I've been on that board for the last almost three years. Gosh, it's almost three years now. And I've had the distinct pleasure of working with them as they tried to take an art form that was built to be exclusive and tear down walls. Well, because of COVID-19, this year's conference was completely virtual, but it would mark the first time that I would return to the stage for the opera conference. But this conversation was something else. And it allowed me to bring my love and enthusiasm and knowledge of technology, leadership, culture, and business to the table and share about leading with technology in opera. This conversation isn't just about opera. In fact, if you're in any business, this conversation is for you because we took the time to think about not technology as a stopgap measure because of the slowdown, but how to take it and innovate and change the face of an industry, in this case, a genre in art. Without further ado, I introduce to you five panelists, including myself, as a part of the Opera Conference conversation on new technologies and their impact. I hope you will enjoy this special extended edition of the Culture Soup Podcast. Good afternoon from the East Coast and good morning if it's on the West Coast. Welcome to Opera Conference 2020, our online conference. I'm Mark Skorka, president of Opera America, and we're here for our session, New Technologies and Their Impact. I want to start by thanking our guest speaker, Doug McLennan, who made the lead presentation. It was articulate, insightful, and tremendously timely. So thanks to Doug. I'd like to take a moment now to introduce some of our other panelists. Uh, Carlene Graham, who is the director of HGO Co. at Houston Grand Opera and a great friend of Opera America. Anne Hyatt, the founder and general director of Opera on Tap. Joe Kluger, a media consultant and a consultant to Opera America and a member of the team at Wolf Brown. Kamala Sankaram, a composer and someone who appears frequently at Opera America sessions. And L. Michelle Smith, a wonderful board member of Opera America, a media consultant, and the CEO of No Silos Communication. This session is generously sponsored by Threshold Acoustics. They have been a sponsor of Opera America's conferences since 2015. So we're really grateful for their steady support. The company provides acoustic, audio and video design, consulting services for public spaces from theaters to open venues. Uh, before we go further, I want to uh, introduce our wonderful facilitator, Ed Harsh. Ed is the founding president of New Music USA. He's a trustee of the Kurt Weill Foundation, and I know that he is busy working on a book about Kurt Weill. Uh, Ed, too, is a frequent visitor to Opera America conferences and forums. We're delighted he's with us today, and I'm happy to turn the session over to him. Ed, take it away. Thanks very much, Mark. Uh, I'm really honored to be uh, uh, moderating this discussion, especially digital technology 
was always going to be important for our way forward together. And now it obviously is only more so. I'm actually just enough of a crazy optimist to think that some of the ways forward may in fact be bright, um, even though the moment we're facing is rather daunting. Um, but uh, I'm delighted to be here with my, my colleagues. Uh, each of my panelist colleagues has uh, been invited to give a kind of initial succinct perspective of their own uh, on new technologies and their impact. The model for concision they've been given is the Gettysburg Address, no pressure. Um, uh, but that gives a kind of de definition of about three minutes or so. Uh, so what we'll do is I will invite each of them in turn to share these perspectives uh, and we'll hear each of those in order. And then uh, we'll in, engage in a more general conversation. And uh, as Mark may have mentioned, uh, the Opera America folks will be keeping an eye on the chat so that if there are questions that you who are watching at home are interested in having addressed. Obviously, there's a lot to talk about here. There's no way we're gonna talk about everything, but we're, we're, we're eager to have your questions too. So uh, with the understanding that my colleagues in Opera America are also gonna be keeping track of the timing a little bit, I will just try to exercise that function gently, but effectively as necessary. Um, but I'd like to start by uh, inviting our first panelist, Kamala, to give, a, give, her, give us her thoughts. Thank you, Ed. And uh, first I wanna thank Doug for such a really important talk beforehand because he's articulated a lot of the things that I was already thinking about, which means that I don't have as much as I might otherwise have to say, but I still have quite a bit, so I'm gonna go really quickly. Um, I wanna to add to this idea of being an opportunist and I wanna specifically point out three areas that I think that we need to focus on going forward. Um, the first of these is revisiting our performance practices and Doug talked about this a little bit with regard to film techniques and web culture. So I am gonna talk about audio because we as a field have had a historically fraught relationship with amplification and with microphones. But the problem that we find ourselves facing is that most of the measures that we can take in the next year if we cannot gather together in a theater involve mediated audio in some capacity. This could be the, the hybrid model of live plus digital online performances, recordings, even if we go outside, we are still going to have to amplify. And so that, what that's going to mean is that opera companies, one, need to think about adding a sound engineer to their staffs. A lot of the times I've seen people try to add amplification at the last minute and it just doesn't work. You need someone who is familiar with your theater, what the acoustic sound is like so that they can properly mic the space and transmit that. And they may want to look into binaural audio, which is really, really exciting. Binaural audio captures audio most similarly to the way that we actually hear. And so it can provide that sense of liveness, the interaction of the singer's voice with the space, which is part of what we are missing when we listen to flat 2D recordings. The technology is there. We just have to get comfortable with it. And to that, I want to add singers. Now is the time for you to start researching what kind of microphone is best going to fit your voice because you know your voice best. Not all microphones are equal. Some emphasize certain aspects of the frequency range over others. Some are more transparent and you are the one who's going to know which microphone is best for your voice. So now is the time to start thinking about 
How am I going to become comfortable with recording, knowing what I sound like and how I can make myself sound best through this mediated performance atmosphere that we find ourselves in? Um, this, of course, is going to mean revisiting the way that we do contracting, because right now it's very, very difficult to, uh, oh my gosh, I've already almost run out of time. So the two other things that I want to bring up are new works. If we want to make the works fit the platform, then we should make works that fit the platform. But the third thing, which is the most important, so I'm going to jump there right now, is we should be creating the platforms. Right now, we are repurposing these tools that were not intended for creating art. And so what they do is they sacrifice audio quality at the expense of video quality. And that's what all of these new platforms do, including Zoom, VR, AR, everything that's out there right now. And the reason for that is they're not created by artists. They don't know what we actually need. And so through partnerships with technology companies, we can be building the things that actually help us. And because they are created out of the theater ecosystem, they will have more of a likelihood of becoming equitable and actually helping the artists involved rather than continuing to build profits for publicly traded companies who are only looking for the bottom line of their shareholders. And I'm out of time. Thank you. Well done, well done. Lots of good stuff. And we may uh, find ourselves returning to some of those points. I mean, that's one of the beautiful things about this model is that, yes, it feels pressured at the beginning, but we can return to, to some of these topics that were brought up. So uh, let's continue uh, around the room, so to speak. Uh, Anne, would you like to, to give us your thoughts next? Sure. Um, and thank you, Mark, for inviting me to participate. And thank you, Doug, your inspiring lead session this week. Suffice to say, I'm also an opportunist. Uh, when it comes to this, uh, speaking today from the perspective of a small community engagement-based company. Um, at our inception, we strove to present an alternative opera experience to our communities that was intimate rather than grand. And we've identified opportunities where exploring deeper technology integrations with our art form could support our grassroots efforts. So we began in 2016 through the creation of the first VR opera with Kamala, the Parksville Murders, also with Jerry Dye and director Carrie Ann Shimsham. Fast forward to today, we are exploring deepened technology integrations across all of our programming. From developing new works, leveraging a diverse array of technologies to virtual live bar concert, its simulations to educational experiences for elementary school children. So here are some things I've been thinking a lot about. During this, 16 years ago, we started out singing opera in bars, and we've seen enough marketing research at this point to know that there is a segment of our audiences who may never step foot in a grand opera house, but will come back for barroom opera again and again. As companies of every circumstance and budget level move into digital environments, this might be a good opportunity to see the opportunity in that. We can develop a diverse ecosystem of works across live and digital platforms, echoing Doug's words about enhancing the broadcast experience for Grand Opera and also developing new works specifically for a diverse array of digital platforms. We can make an opera something for everybody, which not only creates opportunities for companies to develop alternative streams of revenue and reach new audiences, but also creates a more diverse array of opportunities for our artists who may not be the right fit for a grand opera production, but a perfect fit for an anime opera. By expanding the opera ecosystem, we invite more of our community into the opera experience. And by community, I mean both artists and audience. Looking at the world today, we have an astounding percentage of young people across the world from preschool to college now fully trained and engaged daily on online learning platforms. We have elementary school age children pushing the boundaries on what is possible in a virtual play date. 
imagine the possibilities of increased sensory exploration and interactivity that emerging technologies based on spatial computing will allow for. Recently, we worked with an app maker who created a motion capture-based app for kids called Puppet Master, where our collaborating students in our ed program were able to animate their own handmade puppet versions of characters from the Magic Flute and create a video version of the story. By acting out their character in front of an iPad, the app mirrors their movements and the character reflects them. Successor technologies to motion capture, like AR and VR, will allow for even more immersion, interactivity, and active learning. They will allow our artists to explore the point of view of an audience member like never before, down to the ability to sense a person's neural response to sound, visual, and tactile experiences. Hand gestures will replace game controllers. AR contact lenses, even eye drops, will someday replace headsets and smart glasses. Imagine allowing our audiences to literally embody opera. These technologies already allow for that to some degree and are only getting better. Simulated concert halls already exist and more and more people are beginning to visit them. Let's expand our Operaverse and meet them there. Very good, excellent. Also some interesting, interesting points there. And I, I particularly was struck by the idea of artist fit and that artists may fit in different, but that's really interesting. We might wanna talk about that later. Um, so let's, let's proceed now. Uh, Elle Michelle, would you like to, to share your thoughts? Absolutely. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Mark, for having me. And thank you to the board as well of Opera America and to everyone who is out here listening to us. Anne's talk is a great way to tee up what I like to look at as how to lead with technology through building human relationships. Ultimately, Anne enumerated all of the wonderful ways that technology enables what absolutely positively is at the core of this. And that is making a human connection, whether it is with your audience as an artist, whether it is with your companies as a director, <clears throat> whether it is with the community at large. We're talking about relationship building and there are ways to leverage technology to do this, but I'm encouraging opera as an industry, as a business coach, as a certified leadership coach, and also as an elite communicator to use this opportunity to not just use technology as that thing that's gonna get us through this thing, <laughs> but more so as a tool, a weapon of mass innovation so that you can lead and lead through relationship building. So I'm gonna leave you with a few different questions that each of you can raise that will allow you to facilitate relationship building and the connections that technology affords us as we move forward in this brave new world. So question number one, and these are simple questions. You don't have to be a technologist. I am appealing to the human in you, okay? The first question is to how can I own my presence? Whether it's in video, whether it's in AR, whatever technology that you're gonna use, even in audio, how do I own my presence as I'm trying to connect with the people that I'm trying to connect with? In other words, those of you who have been thrown into situations where you have to use Zoom or some other kind of video conferencing or some something that is demanding that you perform <laughs> when you're not on stage, I want you to bring the same ownership to your presence that you would in performance. In other words, make sure that you are honing your craft, that you're getting all of the tools that you need 
to make everything look the way it should, sound the way it should, and so that you can take a leadership position instead of just being along for the ride. The next question is gonna be, what can you do to empathize with the person on the other end? Now, this is also for marketers and people who are on staff, interpersonal, of course it's for artists, it's for everybody, it's for, for composers, it's for everybody. One thing that we're doing right now a lot of is video. And have you noticed that our screen time has quadrupled? Almost 10, it's almost 10X. Even on weekends, we're having happy hours on Zoom. We're streaming our church services. We're doing all of this stuff. How can you empathize with people who are fatigued with screen time? Audio may be the answer. It allows us to multitask. You can actually take that walk that you've been needing when you need to nurture your mind, body, and soul during this time. Think of the other person. I'm asking you to empathize as you integrate technology. The other thing is to personalize it. Find ways to interact with individuals, with groups, in a way that makes it mean something to them specifically. Even as um, a, a professional speaker, one of the things that we share with other striving speakers is to make sure that you're speaking to one person in the audience. If you speak to one person, you're gonna get to everyone because guess what? I'm speaking to you, right? Um, one technology that I've used most recently that Marcus is over the moon for is <laughs> a, a platform that uses video with email so that when I do a follow-up, they actually see my face and I actually call them by name. Find ways to personalize what you're doing in technology. The next couple are, are, are intertwined. Add value every time you use this technology. In other words, what does your audience or the person on the other end need from you and make sure they get it every time and every time speaks to consistency. That's the last question. How can you build in consistency in everything that you do? First of all, it's not gonna be something that you do and you can't finish, but it's also going to give you trends and, and ways that you can track data and see what's working and what's not. You'll be able to pivot, but you'll also be expected and that's what you want the person on the other end to do. Expect something. And I hope with those five questions, you'll be able to lead with technology in opera. Thank you, Michelle. I really, I, the, I'm sure that the weapon of mass innovation is a phrase that we're gonna find ourselves returning to in our brains. It's really, really powerful phrase. Um, Carlene, would you like to share your thoughts? Hello, everyone. Thank you for including me in today's um, event. I've been thinking a lot over the last several weeks about the ways in which our current situation um, will shape and is shaping in, in the operatic and performing arts industries. As Doug stated in Monday's address, we are in a destabilizing time, the next big bang moment in which the performing arts will be forever changed. We are now forced to imagine the near future without opportunities to sing together or to gather for live operatic performances. Instead, we have been herded into a new world where experimentation, art making, and the deep need to connect, as Elle Michelle just referenced, with, with one another has resulted in a wide ranging output 
that will impact the way opera is created and consumed from now on. And this is an exciting time. At Houston Grand Opera, uh, our 2017 strategic plan, HGO identified four pillars by which the company would move forward. One of which is to prioritize the creative use of current and emerging technologies to convey the operatic art to a much broader public. In the last few years, innovative digital products uh, projects have received recognition, including an Emmy Award for the 2017 film short, The Ring Cycle by Sculpting with Time Productions. In the spring of 2018, HGO Co. released the first episode in the star-crossed web series entitled Boundless. Composed by Avner Dorman to a libretto by Stephanie Fleischman and directed by Nick Heim, it won a bronze 2019 Telly Award in the arts and culture category. Two more episodes complete the series. The second one is Now, music by Avner Dorman, written and directed by John Grimmett, and A Rose, composed by my dear friend and uh, co-panelist Kamala Shankaram, written by Kamala Shankaram with Misha Penton and directed by Misha Penton. HGO's deep connection and commitment to the greater Houston community and beyond now calls us to further imagine how we provide high quality and deeply impactful operatic art and content to those with whom we collaborate and serve. HGO Co's Emily Wells is member of one of the winning teams from the San Diego Opera's 2019 Opera Hack, funded by an Opera American Innovation Grant. The Opera Map team is creating a virtual database of U.S. opera houses to aid production teams and venues. Our partnership with Houston Public Media provides an opportunity to revisit some of HGO's hallmark productions, including Clusa la Cara de la Luna and The Ring Cycle. Next month, we, we will launch our virtual camp called Discover Opera for teenagers who are really serious about singing. And we will be partnering with local and state school districts, libraries, and retirement communities to provide interactive, meaningful content. Our expectations about how we make, consume, and participate in art making are changing as I speak. And so creators, artists, producers, and audiences must fully embrace the role that technology can play in opera's future and to think about ways to make it appealing and available to a worldwide audience. We all deeply need to connect to one another, to participate in something meaningful, and to experience events that are transcending. Let's collaborate with our communities and with each other to make this happen. Thank you. Thanks, Carlene. And uh, it's, it's actually uh, good to be reminded of some of the work. It, it's not as if we're all starting from scratch here. I mean, there's, there's already a lot of good work out there um, and may become more central and more important uh, going forward. But, but it's great to be reminded that, that Houston and others have done some really great work already. Um, okay, Joe, would you like to finish up our initial series of Gettysburg addresses? Uh, yes, assuming that I can get this to the technology guy. Can you all see that PowerPoint? Great. Yes. Gettysburg Address. I've been doing this for two score and two years. And throughout that time in my work in the arts, I've been observing that opera companies, orchestras, and other classical music institutions have had as their primary mission the presentation of 
live performances for people in the theater. Um, that's what this is all about. And technology or the electronic distribution of those performances has for some institutions been an important but secondary part of what they do and hasn't been core to the mission. It's helped us bring more people to our performances. It's helped bring those performances to others, but it hasn't been central. As Doug persuasively articulated, uh, this is a crisis that presents a tremendous opportunity because it's an opportunity to make what I think um, should be a core of everyone's mission, the use of technology as an equal role, not to replace the live performance, but to use it uh, to help accomplish our missions. The question is, are you gonna build it into your budgets going forward, the way you build education and community activities in, whether you get incremental funding or not, or are you gonna to continue to make it a nice to have activity? I have a belief that the activity that you do in distributing opera performances through technology requires the same level of intentional planning that you do for the operas that go on the stage for your strategic plans throughout the year. You've gotta be really clear about what your objectives are in the use of technology. You can't just say, I'm gonna put on, I'm gonna emulate the Metropolitan Opera and, and put our performances in theaters in thousands of uh, venues around the world. Each opera company has a different audience. It has a different uh, set of strengths and you need to design digital strategies, both the content and the targeting of the audiences you're trying to reach based on what your particular objectives are as an institution. This is a framework that I think is useful as we start to talk about one of the key things Doug highlighted in his talk, which is how do we, um, how do we get away from the expectation that the distribution of streaming content is something the audiences are gonna expect to get for free. In the old world, we always provided uh, users free access to temporary content, whether that was a radio broadcast or a television broadcast, and they were used to paying to buy a CD or a DVD. The problem with the way the internet works is that the lines are being blurred between what is ephemeral and what is collectible content. And we have to think really, really carefully about how to, um, you, you can't change that expectation, but you can create content that people are motivated to pay for. Um, excuse me, I'm stuck. There we go. Um, I want to end with kind of a, a, a vision question. If we all, if, if I had a magic wand and I could imagine any future for the use of technology to distribute uh, classical music performances, it would be that we really use this moment to think big, uh, to imagine uh, that we have a platform in which the content is, the performances are distributed, but also a, a platform in which we can interact and create a community of people. Look at all the people who are blogging about opera. They, they are passionate about their singers and their performances. Imagine that we created a centralized site that was both that forum for that kind of interaction, but also a forum for distributing this content, some of it for free, some of it on a premium level that 
distributed this content to our audiences, but also could monetize some of it in a way that helps to support what we're doing. I don't know if this is realistic. I do believe that to make it happen, we're much better off creating a mega mall of which we all are members rather than trying to go separately in, in solving this um, and taking advantage of this insurmountable opportunity. And um, that's all I have to say. Well, that, that's a lot. Thank you, Joe. Um, uh, and uh, you touched again on a lot of, a lot of things I think I, I'm hearing some resonance throughout a number of the presentations and also with, with Doug, some things that we'll want to loop back to. And actually, I, I would like to, to ask Doug, um, you, uh, you had the, the extended presentation which kind of started this all. Uh, I'm curious what you hear resonating in the, the, the five presentations we just heard. It, are, you, are there themes that you hear running throughout that connect up with, with what you were saying? Uh, yes. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for, for having me. I feel like I've, I've kind of eaten more than my share since I got 20 minutes at the beginning of this. So I'll try and keep it a little brief. But um, I heard lots of great ideas here. And um, whoever said that, you know, we have to remember that there have been lots of great things that are already existing. Um, this is really the Big Bang moment right now. And um, things are loose and experiments are happening. And depending on where your perspective, where your seat at the table is, is how you're gonna see it um, differently. Kamala had this great point of, you know, think about the sound of this, right? Um, uh, the, the, the sound for opera means something different than it does for theater or for a lot of other art forms. And so we need artists who are working on technology from the artistic side, uh, the artistic point of view, right? The strategy point of view. Um, tools are easy. My, my tech friends will hate this, but um, tools are really easy. Really great ideas are very hard. And so what is it that you need? You need the tools to be able to do something, but you can acquire those. The getting the great strategy, the getting the idea, the starting from what it is that you're trying to accomplish. What is the mission? What is the point of what you're trying to do? Then find the tools to be able to make that happen. Now, I realize the hardest part of that is that how do you know what's possible until you see the tools? And, and that's true. But that's also a trap that people fall into where they let the tools lead them and they go down paths where it's just like, you don't know how you ended up here, but it isn't working. So if you always remember to think about what it is that you're trying to accomplish, then find the tools, I think that you're, you're, you're in a much better space. I, I'm interested in the idea of um, the, there is this interplay between the kind of vision that you have in this case, kind of an oral vision of the, the voice and the sound and what the tools are capable of. Um, uh, I'm curious, Anne, you've had a lot of experience of uh, the, the voice in uh, situations which were not, the, the operatic voices actually, actually, you know, did not develop as a matter of something happening in a bar. Um, but obviously you've made it clear that that works really well in a lot of other situations too. So do you have anything that you, you any thought about the way we're thinking about the voice and the, the way 
our vision of it may actually need to change given the technology, or do you think it's a matter of the technology meeting the voice where it is? I think it's somewhere in the middle. I mean, I, as, as you know, to echo Kamala, I think um, binaural audio has a really amazing potential. Um, it's certainly for us, we used it on the VR opera. Well, we used a version, sort of a more limited version, a quad binaural system where we had four locations, but we were able to capture the two principal singers in the space and it sounded very beautiful, like they had a bloom that you would not hear on a stereo recording. So I think, you know, and now on social VR platforms, you know, there is, there is true distance, you know, in terms of what you hear when there's another presence in the room with you. So I think um, it certainly will get a lot closer to live, um, these technologies, and certainly I think performing arts professionals have a real opportunity to push the technology industry right now on the sound side. Um, I think, you know, there tends to be, and I think this is even before VR and AR, but there was always an emphasis in 2D film first on the visuals and then the sound. As I think Kamala would agree, we've had a lot of conversations about this. And I think it's the same right now, but sound really makes such a big difference in terms of how it helps storytelling in immersive 360 environments. So I think it's definitely something that, you know, A, we're going to have a role to play as the artists who, who develop this sound. And I think we'll get closer and we'll see. <laughs> Kamala, would you like to respond? Uh, yeah, I just, I want to jump in and say that part of the issue is I, said very, very quickly, uh, is that uh, there's always, there always has to be a trade-off, right? And limited bandwidth is what, what kind of information are you prioritizing? And it has always been visual information up until this point, but I think that we could push for a platform that doesn't prioritize the, the visual information in the same way, but pro that prioritizes the, the audio. And I, it would be interesting to experiment with that, like how much of the visual image, how much visual clarity do we actually need? How much are we willing to give up in exchange for the higher fidelity audio? Um, but the other piece of this that I think that's very interesting is, and this goes back to performance practices also, is what how could this free a performer in a way if they don't have to think about projecting to the back of a 3,000 seat house? What kind of vocal colors or uh, subtlety of acting could you explore that isn't possible right now? So I think that that's another way of thinking about it, that it's not, you know, as soon as, as long as we can capture the, 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 the interaction of the voice with the acoustic space, I think that's the most important thing, but that we don't have to exactly model what the the acoustics of particular theaters are right now because some of them are kind of impossible. So what is the ideal that we could we could look for? Uh, Doug, and then actually I have a follow-up for El Michelle, but Doug, please go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to say I, I think one of the things in, in this transition and, and in thinking about this is that we have to re-explore what live actually means, right? Um, live between one person and one other person means something very different from live between a performer on a stage and an audience. It means something different um, uh, when, you're, when you're broadcasting live on television, there's a sort of ex expectation of what the, the, um, what the dynamic is in the exchange. 
when it comes to the web, it's a whole different version of live, right? Um, part of the problem we're having right now is we're thinking about live in a very particular perspective. And that leads us to have crappy video, crappy audio, crappy, a whole bunch of things because, oh, it's live, right? Um, but, but we don't have to do that. We can fake the live for things that aren't essential to the live experience on the web, right? While preserving the things that are truly interactive and live in a web experience. But we have to reconceptualize what that idea of live is. And too often we talk about it as if live means one thing. Yeah, that's a great point. Live means a lot of things now, or can be, uh, can mean. Elle Michelle, I wanted to ask you, I was struck by your, the first question, how can I own, how can we own our presence? And it, one of the things I think that, that we're talking about here is the extent to which the operatic voice, which is the voice that we've known, is in fact kind of our presence or artist's presence or the art form's presence. I wonder if you had any comments on, as you hear this conversation about kind of rethinking what that might be, what, what that brings up in your mind. Uh, you're muted actually at the moment. El Michelle, you're muted. I got it now, thanks. Um, absolutely, I think that uh, Kamala has hit on the core of what this is all about. So much of opera's um, excellence <laughs> is wrapped up in the audio. And it really is important that we deliver what people expect from the art form. And the way you're gonna to have to do that is to make sure that it is excellent, no matter what platform you're delivering it on. And Doug made an excellent point. Live on the web is something totally different from live somewhere else. So what does it take to actually make sure that that artist who is delivering this beautiful rendition from this instrument that she or he has cultivated for so many years is actually able to be appreciated? So then you need to circle back and look at those tools that you're using and making sure that you have the best tools. And I think that's going to be the mandate more so than, gee, we need to just be innovating for the sake of innovation. You need to make sure that your tools are meeting your why. And at the end of the day, you've got to ask the question, what is our why? Yeah, great. Um, and so two follow-ups on the same topic from two different perspectives from Carlene and Joe. First, Carlene, I know that, that uh, Houston Grand Opera has an amazing artist training program. Uh, and uh, so one of the issues is now, for, for especially for maybe younger artists who are kind of coming forth in this new world that has not yet appeared, but we see coming, um, there's a training issue. Uh, do you have any thoughts on what companies uh, or, or conservatories training programs can do to help uh, young artists or all artists even just kind of up their game in this respect. I'm glad you asked that. Yes, I do have a lot of opinions about that. Um, actually, um, and I think about it frequently. Um, and I would believe that the singers in general, I was literally thinking about this yesterday. Singers are only, when they're being trained classically, they're only taught about that one part of their voice. And to me, it seems utterly ludicrous to only train a, 
a person who uses this instrument here in only one aspect. And so why, why, why not train, also train the whole voice, train the whole person, but training the whole voice means, you know, sometimes, you know, you'll have a singer come into an audition and they'll have to do a monologue and they, they literally just can't project their speaking voice. They can't use their speaking voice in the same way that they use their singing voice. And so for me, I think teaching, you know, early on integrating the whole voice concept into training is going to be critical. And then this moves us to the idea of how a person understands how to use audio equipment, how they use their voice. I mean, obviously theater and musical theater are, are in television are way ahead. It's also a different, we also use the, our instruments differently than they do um, in those in those venues. So it's it's a matter of of training, getting singers or getting getting institutions to think more comprehensively about how they're looking at the voice, and and training the whole voice so that it can be prepared to engage in these new technologies and not just under very special specific pristine conditions. And I think, again, it'll give singers flexibility, which will then give them um, a much uh, bigger opportunity to, uh, to get work. Ed, can I piggyback on that? Absolutely, please. I think you touched on something that's so important, Carlene. Um, there are areas of performance that maybe even these artists aren't, um, they haven't been exposed to, like being on camera. That's mm-hmm. a whole different <laughs> discipline, you know. Absolutely. Um, I'm a singer. I'm not an opera singer, but I actually know how to use a mic with my voice so that I can get softer tones or louder tones or richer tones. Those are all disciplines that we need to start to think about. That's just the artist. <laughs> when we start thinking about the directors and the companies and the people who do the business behind the scenes, these are things that you need to think about so that you can project with excellence. And that gets back to the idea of owning your presence with mm-hmm. these tools. If you are excellent doing these things, you lead and people want to follow you. And that creates people who actually want to be attracted to you and those relationships form. So if we're looking to attract new audiences to opera, we have to be able to own these tools like we've owned the opera house. Great. Joe, I saw you. Do you have a yeah. response immediately to that? Uh, so, you know, one of, the, one of the, think, I think the guiding principles around where we go f- in the future here is to um, everybody involved has to accept responsibility for being proactive in using technology to accomplish individual and organizational needs. In the 20th century, you could be running an opera company and you wait for the radio station or the television station to contact you saying, please, we'd like to broadcast you. They're not going to be contacting you today. You have to be intentional about building this into the institutional plan for the future. The only way to do that is to start, as you've been talking about, at the training level, Um, not with performers. Uh, One of the projects I did about 10 years ago was helping NEC develop its entrepreneurial musicianship program where they required every graduate to have certain basic skills. 10 years ago, you didn't need to worry about how to 
have a social media presence, but today that's essential. And I think the arts administration and, and opera administrator training programs need to build into them a fundamental basic knowledge of technology and how to use it strategically to accomplish organizational objectives. That's great, yeah. Um, and actually, um, maybe back to Doug um, or, or Joe or anybody, um, the, the, uh, I'm interested in the distinction between there are, we're sort of positing a future in which there is this kind of uh, a, a dual or multiple um, focus of opera companies, you know, so it isn't just uh, opera on the stage in a big hall, um, and that's a movement that already had, had begun, but in the short term of this, there's a kind of long-term vision, but in the short term, um, Doug, let's say you, if, if you were uh, running an opera company now, what would you be thinking in terms of first steps down this path we're talking about, which involves training and technology from a, from a company perspective? Boy, that, that's a huge, huge topic. Um, <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you a nice, easy one. <laughs> yeah. You could write a whole book on it. Well, bite, um, bite off a little piece. Okay, I, I'm going to bite off um, partnerships piece, right? Um, we always hear about how uh, arts organizations would love to be in partnership with tech companies, right? Tech companies have money. Tech companies have resources. Tech companies can do magic things, right? But I think, and, and I mean no disrespect to anybody, um, I think that arts organizations for the most part are not very good at partnerships. Um, because I think that, that often the partnerships that we do uh, are from a self-interested point of view, whether we want to admit it or not, right? It's like, I found a really great project. Now I'm gonna go find somebody to uh, collaborate with or partner with. And I'm going to go to them and I'm going to say, wow, what you do is really amazing. Could you like not pay attention to that for a little bit and come and work on my project over here, right? Um, and, and, and then we do the project. And even if it's successful, people go on their ways for the most part. But um, if you want to work with a tech company, you have to show them how it's a benefit to them. Right? If they're going to bring amazing technology, if they're going to bring money to it, resources to it, um, what is it that they need that their encounter with you is going to give them that they couldn't get elsewhere? Google says that its best engineers have arts backgrounds, right, B rather than tech backgrounds. Um, there's a reason for that they need to have um, the ideas and the ways of thinking and the ability to test things out in, in, that artists do all the time. So we just have to figure out ways in which if we wanna have really partners at a high level that they get as much or more out of it than we actually do. Can, can I- uh, Yeah, I think got, everybody point. has something to say about this. Right. So actually I think I saw Anne and then Carlene and then Joe. Three, three, three around the corner. Anne, you want to um, go first? So I just wanted to provide sort of an anecdote speaking to that because, you know, when we did the VR piece and then we went, we premiered it with Samsung and the thing that actually really they responded to was the fact the exhibition we wanted to build around the VR showing. So it wasn't necessarily just put it on your platform and 
and give us money for that. But it was like, we're going to create this big live immersive experience at your developer conference. And, you know, from that experience, they were also behind the scenes. One of the things they were working on was, okay, mass adoption for VR has not happened. We all expected it to happen in 2016 and it didn't. So they moved towards location-based experiences. And having that knowledge, I was able to say, let's let's create a location-based experience, you know, that includes a live opera component around this VR piece. And that that's sort of what kept that partnership going through the uh, through that project's premiere and production. Sorry, Carleen, you had a you had a point. Yeah, and I, it sort of occurs to me too that I think also we in the opera community tend to often think that we have to, there's a there's a a pristineness or a tradition that has to be preserved if in any partnership. And I would think that we we need to really be able to let go of that notion. Um, again, we always want good singing, but you know, good singing is subjective and it evolves over time. And so um, as do anything, things that move us, the way we respond to social situations and whatnot. So I think that we, opera companies have to, and singers and producers have to be, be open to when they're partnering is that it's not going to ever end up or shouldn't end up exactly the way we might think it needs to. That's what a part, a partnership means collaboration. And collaborating is means that, you know, you, again, you're not sacrificing quality, but you're, you, it hopefully allows us to think differently about the way we do things. And those are, that's when the, the that, those are some of the greatest benefits of partnerships. No, indeed. I, I, I love the direction of the, the, the points made about partnership as, as not, as a, as a mutuality, um, because I think actually that's where growth is on all sides. And I think those points being made, it's, it's excellent. Joe, you said you wanted to follow up on this too. Well, yeah, because I understand, I understand the point that it, opera companies may not be great at partnerships with tech companies because that's not your area of core competency. Um, but one of the um, principles that I think will help opera companies in the future is recognizing that other opera companies are not competitive with us, but they, they represent an opportunity to collaborate. So yeah, you want to maintain the Houston brand in the marketplace. But if you're trying to um, work with technology companies that have historically been the bottleneck distributors of content in the 20th as well as 21st century, you need some leverage against them. And the, that will happen only if we work together to try to negotiate some share of the revenue that is more than the traditional one. In the 20th century, and you were working with a record company, you were lucky to get 10% and they got 90%. Um, I, I'm, I think there are ways to, in, in this mega mall concept that I have, to maintain your brand integrity in the marketplace, but behind the scenes to collaborate on what, get, what the strategy is, how to, how to negotiate with the distributors so that you don't get um, cut out and you don't lose leverage in that negotiation. Okay, Kamala, I see your hand. <laughs> I just, I want to jump in and say that um, one of the things that we're not talking about is it's not just what the tech company gets from it, but it's also the fact that a lot of them are artists and they are interested in art. 
And that has been my experience in any collaboration that I've had on a project involving tech. Like for example, um, I had a piece in September that was about surveillance, capitalism, and privacy. We partnered with technologists at Carnegie Mellon University. And um, this piece was called Looking at You, a librettist Rob Hendel and directed by Kristen Marting at Here Art Center. So we, we partnered with Carnegie Mellon and then also with the, some of the founders of Bandcamp.com who built us a custom database in order to sync uh, 25 tablet computers so that they could sing together in real time as a chorus. Um, they did this because they wanted to make art. And so I think that those people do exist. And I think that those tech companies do exist. They just might not be the big names that, that we're familiar with. But I think there's also maybe a little bit of fear in reaching out to this, this sort of environment that we don't know so much about. But if we're willing to get past the fear and ask for help, I think there are people out there who will help us. And I think that that's going to be necessary going forward especially if we do have to continue working in these very mediated environments that we we want to have more control over what what the uh, the audio and the visuals of these environments are that's how we do it is we ask for help from people who know how to do it Doug uh, just one very quick point um, if you ask people, I, I have done this with hundreds of people now, if you ask people where do they think the most creative things in our society are going on, nobody says art anymore. They say my cell phone, technology, um, you know, cancer research, genetic, whatever. That's what they think of as creativity. And all of the workers in these are trying to solve really interesting problems and they have ideas and everything. So if we can tap into those so that the kind of creativity we do collaborates with the kind of creativity they do, that's a win for everybody. This mute and unmute thing is crazy, huh? Um, so, I'd like to make sure we don't get too far down the road without talking a little bit about actually the people with whom we are partnering, partnering in a different way, i.e. audience, people we're engaging with, people who are listening. Um, and uh, one of the things I, I was, I, there are a lot of places to go on this, but, but El Michelle, going back to another one of your questions, you were talking about empathy. How do I empathize? Um, and uh, a lot of our conversation so far has been very much from the, this is what we're doing as creators, as companies, et cetera. I'm curious if you have uh, kind of uh, insight and perspective on how we can think about the other side, the receiver side. Uh, muted again, sorry. Yeah, we're gonna get used to that, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Empathy is core to extraordinary leadership. I call it rock star leadership. It separates brands from other brands and human beings from other human beings. And what it is, it is core to emotional intelligence quotient, which means that you understand your context in which you're communicating, which you're singing, in which you're doing whatever. And you understand the people that are within that context. So this is something that goes all the way back to marketing. I think Joe would probably <laughs> chime in and show something on his paradigm that, that expresses this, but you need to understand what is it your community is actually wanting and needing. And that should drive your why. 
That's how you're going to drive the value, which was question number four, to your audience, to the receiver of whatever you're giving. If you can speak to their pain points, you're going to win every time. And you should be able to do that. So this is going to take some, some exploration, some research to find out what is it that your audience needs. And then don't stop there. Try to be inclusive. There are other audiences out there that we have not discovered that this technology will allow us to reach. Or there are people who don't have the access that would like to be reached. We don't, we don't even know, right? They need Wi-Fi connection. They need it. And this is a way to work with some of these partners to yeah. expand the reach of this technology. But again, Ed, I can't stress more than, than I have already, but this is a human to human connection. So you've got to think of the people. Right, indeed, no, fully agreed. And a lot of hands raised around here. I wanna note there, there are two interesting, there's a, there's a kind of question I wanna make sure we pursue as you know, to what extent the online audience might be a completely different audience or an overlap audience or a audience brought along. There's that piece, but there's also the piece you just referred to, El Michelle, uh, the digital divide issue in that we can't feel, we got to remember that we may be leaving a lot of people behind potentially. And that's something we should think about. Pamela, though, you had, you had a point. Yes, because I think that the, the audience question is something that often gets left out of the discussion of online uh, live stream, all of that, uh, in asking what is the design of the audience experience? For example, right now we are streaming from Zoom to YouTube. And so we don't have any interaction with the people that are watching this. They might be chatting with each other, but we can't see what, what they're saying. And so that is already removing what the performance experience has been traditionally. Um, so for, for, for another example, when I, I made a Zoom opera that we performed live over a Zoom, and one reason we did it that way was so that people could be in the Zoom with us. But now there's this new thing called Zoom bombing where people will come into your Zoom and they'll post really nasty comments. So in order to prevent that from happening, we had to mute them and turn their video off and they were not allowed to chat and they were not allowed to put questions into the Q&A, but we could see how many people they, they were there. So I don't know if that was a better audience experience than chatting with each other on the YouTube. And that's something that we have to figure out because I don't think either of them is actually adequately representing what it's like to be in a theater with other people, which is part of the reason that we go is to, is to be with other people. So is it necessary to have a chat box going at the same time that there's a performance or is it too distracting? Is it enough to see how many people are watching with you or do you actually need to be able to interact with them in some other way? If we're live streaming from a theater, can we see a wall of faces of everybody who's watching? Would that be enough? This is a big, big question. Yeah, and Doug, actually you touched upon this in your, in your presentation. I believe you were saying that the, the internet wants to be talked back to. Um, and so actually, do you have a comment about what, what the direction we're going here? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, we assume our audience experience that, that we want to give um, equity to audience, right? We want to, um, we want to make it more accessible to more people. But, you know, everything is defined by the tools that you use. And a theater is a tool. And um, for many people, a theater is a foreign tool. 
uh, a theater is some place that they have no experience of going to, nor would they ever want to, right? And so then when you think about putting something online, a, a place where many people are very, very comfortable being and where they exist in great part, we're all doing that right now, um, that, that is, is a completely different tool. And it provides you the opportunity to think about equity of audience in an entirely different way, right? So we shouldn't assume that the, the equity of being in a physical space is like the gold standard and that, um, that, you know, how are we going to get those people to go online with us? Maybe there's an entirely different, well, I know there's an entirely different audience out there. There are many different audiences out there um, who would find the digital experience much more equitable and, and welcoming to them, a language that they understand. Ed, I, I, I really, Joe, first you, and then I want to ask Anne a question because if this is resonating at all with her experience and all yes. that. But I, I think one of the basic concepts we need to understand about audiences is that they are not monolithic. We, we, they are, in the same way that we segment audiences into some people like traditional opera and some people like contemporary, some people will want to, an experience that is the traditional passive experience that they have in the theater, and some will want an interactive one where they can chat and blog away. In the same way that the Met has um, subtitles on the back of every seat in front of you. So you can decide whether you want that or whether you want to turn it off. I think we need to do the same, same thing in a web environment. Interesting. So Anne, the question of whether any of this conversation about equity of space, et cetera, is resonating. And then Carlene, I think you have a comment as well. Anne first. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely, I mean, first of all, the gold standard should be bars, just kidding. <laughs> but, but real, yes, I mean, certainly, and I mentioned it in the, or my Gettysburg, I think that without question, you know, there are people who prefer other types of environments to experience it. And I think we can create experiences that are, you know, also welcoming to them. So, you know, even coming from the writing perspective and, and all of that, and who's writing it, and who are you speaking to, like, there's just so much more opportunity um, even beyond the technology platform we choose to reach, you know, to include more people in it. Um, but yeah, you know, I think certainly I agree with Doug. I don't think that the theater needs to be the thing that defines how we create those human connections. Mm -hmm. Carlene, you had a point? Yeah, and what, what I keep coming back to as I'm listening is that I think people, there's, there are many people who want to move forward and experiment, but you know, classical music has, has done itself in. We have created over the years an environment that is exclusive. And now that we are, we are desiring to be inclusive, we don't understand why everyone doesn't want to join us and think that, that what we're doing is great. And because other things now also we have lots more, we have a lot more competition with other um, types of entertainment and um, pastimes. And so I think that, and it's, it's all very much tied to the donor base of our respective um, uh, institutions and organizations. And there is sometimes there, there is still an exclusivity there that is very hard to get around. And, and I think that this is an opportunity 
for everyone to, again, if we can find, you know, it, it, I come back to the idea of we all want a personal experience. And I, I, I often, and I would argue that that personal experience very much includes now personal choice. If I want to turn that on, I can. If I want to turn it off, I can. I don't want to be um, subjected to what my neighbor is doing or not doing. I want to be. I want to be in my world, and there's a bit of that going on. And and being home, I mean, I can do whatever I want when I want. And when I go out into the public, I have to. Um, there are things that aren't considered good behavior, right? So there is. I think we we're dealing with that as we move forward. That that I think people think of it as a personal choice and a personal. Um, right as to what they want to do. And that's going to really motivate how people want or not want to participate. Yeah, indeed. And the uh, interesting that you connect to the point of donor base, which always is a thing is worthy of thinking about, you know, where the, the where especially large amounts of money comes from. Um, Doug, I was really struck in your um, presentation the, uh, the, the you talked about a number of a number of different ways of getting money in various sizes to the company kind of and you said all it wasn't a matter of choosing which one that there was a kind of almost an inclusiveness of fundraising and I don't know if you if, if that's the way you would characterize it but that I'm curious what you might have to say about that whether that actually changes the game somewhat if you're looking for kind of a, a many more ways of getting money than just a, a big check at the end of the year from a board member. Yeah, you know, th um, there was a study um, by the Seattle Cultural Division a number of years ago that was looking at how musicians were getting paid these days. And they found something remarkable, like it was, there were 27 um, streams of revenue <laughs> that they were uh, that they it were. It was getting. fifty-six, I think. Uh, uh, there was an, at least there may have been many studies, but there are a lot. <laughs> yes, a lot. Um, and you know, this is something I discovered with Arts Journal when I first started out. Is you know, we started a few months before the dot-com bomb happened, and and um, all of our clients went out of business. And um, what you learn is that you've got to have multiple ways of making money, multiple ways of, of, of supporting yourself. I think that, um, you know, we all know that the, the nonprofit model, the, the, the pure nonprofit model, uh, hasn't worked well for years. And we've chipped around the edges of it. You know, public radio, public television now does commercials. I mean, those are commercials. They call them underwriting spots. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of chipping away trying to make this hybrid model kind of work um, for nonprofits, but it's been failing for a long time. So um, when things are all up in flux, right, this is a gift from heaven right now. Um, it's how do we think about this in a way where, where we could reinvent the, the ways in which we expect to make money um, from you know, Google spends, um, does millions of A-B tests every day. You know, as something as little as how much white space around the search box will get people to click more times on something, right? Um, we don't do nearly enough of that. Um, and the, the point is, is that, that we have to try a whole lot of things in the newspaper business, in the journalism business, um, you know, advertising was uh, the mainstay of financing the news for years. 
Um, but now advertising has tanked. And finally, it looks like the model, there weren't any models that were working for, for, for a long time. Now, the finally, we have a couple of models in which it's reader supported, but in a variety kinds of digital subscriptions, memberships, live things, micropayments in, in, in a lot of cases. Um, and so you've got, you know, the New York Times, Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal are all doing fine. Most of the others aren't. But we need to be able to think about, um, you know, now that the whole model is blown up anyway and is not going to work, let's just acknowledge that it hasn't worked for a long time and figure out what comes next. Yeah. El Michelle, did you have a comment? I do, it piggybacks off Carleen and Doug. Um, Carleen kind of mentioned the concept of echo chambers, where we're all in our communities, we can shut out everybody else that we don't agree with. And we see this mostly on social media. And, and it reminded me too, uh, when Doug was speaking about this model that hasn't been working for fundraising, um, the good news is that social media actually you know, allows us to create community. It's another way to look at it, right? So if you are an enthusiast for opera, let's just say, what if we looked at Patreon, which um, in the podcasting community and some other uh, technology communities is really cool because you get to opt in, right? You pay for the subscription of content that happens all the time and you might get bonus content. What if Opera were to find a platform that was good for the artists and the actual sound and, and, and it, it was at least worthy of the art form and you were able to share that in a way where you could take advantage of those echo chambers. And I would like to flip that and say communities that actually love opera and would actually donate to hear more. Wouldn't that be exciting? So, Doug, you've got to follow up. I also want to follow up with Joe on this, too. But, Doug, go ahead. I, I was pitched yesterday uh, by this company that's creating things they're calling the virtual theater, um, in which people come in and you come into a lobby. You can see everybody else in the lobby. You can say hi to them. You can hang out with them. You can go into little ro side rooms and whatever. Then the, the thing uh, happens. You make your way into the theater. Um, they uh, have monetized it just like up the wazoo. I mean, it's just like so many ways. They sell swag, they sell experience, they sell personalized stuff. Um, and um, at least, I, you know, I haven't checked this out, but they have, um, they claim uh, that they can generate enormous revenues from this. Um, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a different kind of way of thinking about how you gather on the web to witness something together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, and I've heard about all interesting other models similar to that, where gathering is key, and actually you see the gathered together. Joe, I was curious, um, uh, hearing this conversation and having to do with you know, multiple revenue streams, multiple business models. What would you say to, uh, you know, an opera board, uh, individual trustees, people who are, you know, fiscally responsible for uh, the model that we are right now declaring not doesn't work. Um, and I'll just say that I'm hearing that. I'm not saying that myself, but um, uh, I'm curious what you say to the trustee who's saying, okay, wow, we're in a really different space now. What should we be thinking about? 
you, you can't, that is what it is. I can't, we can't make a, make a metric wand and make that go away. The question is, um, can we help solve that problem by identifying opportunities to increase productivity? I, I was particularly taken with Doug's baseball analogy or sports analogy. Um, we have in the arts traditionally looked at technological distribution as, a, as an ancillary business with an ancillary source of revenue that maybe that, that's, a, that's a cost center rather than a, than a net profit center. And um, I think the sports world has really thrived because they don't separate the, re the, the revenue. We're in, we, the mission is to put on inspiring opera performances and bring that to as many people as possible. Some of them are gonna be in the, in the theater, some of them are gonna be reached digitally and we're gonna take all of that revenue, however we derive it and use it to support the organizations. We're still gonna need philanthropic support, but it's gonna be generated sometimes from people who, you know, when you pass the hat in the theater and sometimes when you pass, a, a, you know, your Venmo uh, button on, on a digital distribution thing. Okay. Thank you. Um, I want to make sure that we don't, in the course of all this time, not get circled back to Kamala's point, which she glanced over after about 15 seconds, which had to do with the actual creation of new work that matches the new reality. Um, and Kamala, I'd like to just start with you because you actually started and just noted it as a point. I wonder if you'd like to give us some thoughts on that. Yes. And um, I think that Doug touched, touched on it in his talk also, which is that um, when you're dealing with a platform like the box here, the performance practices that you use in a proscenium theater are not going to work because there's this, this ready intimacy that you have if you're right up in someone's face that if you're trying to project to the back of a 3,000 seat theater again, then, then it does, it's not the same experience. And so we have to adjust what we're doing in order to fit the thing that, that we're working with. But I also think that that means there's an opportunity to make things specifically for the platform. And, and that's, that's why I made that Zoom opportunity it was meant to be an experiment to see if you did make something to be performed live in this situation, how could that work? And because of that, it ended up being an aleatoric piece because there's an inherent latency when you're doing things online that means that you can't sync up. And if I tried to do a traditional opera in this medium, it simply wouldn't work. And similarly for the, for the virtual reality opera, because you as the audience member are plunked down into an actual scene, like you're there with the characters, you have to think differently about how the audio was working. Where is the music coming from? And so for that piece, it was scored diegetically for objects that are in the environment, a radiator, a ticking clock, and a television set. And again, if I was going to do a Mozart piece in that environment, I would want to see the orchestra. I wouldn't want it floating above my head somewhere because that's not real either. So I think that... Um, for each of these media that we are dealing with, um, the medium is the message. Like McLuhan said, right? The way that we are dealing with the, the mode of transmission shapes what we are doing. And that's true regardless of whether we're using something that was already made, but I think that it works best if we make things specifically for the medium that we're using. Yeah, indeed. And so I'm curious, uh, Anne and Carleen uh, representing two different uh, uh, kinds of companies uh, kind of making work, um, what, would, what can you do, what can companies do, maybe let's just generalize it, 
um, to encourage uh, artists to, the, to, to see opera as an opportunity in this respect, that, um, that the, you know, opera has a kind of a, a mode of thought uh, in a lot of maybe composers' minds of what an opera is, but your companies may potentially be able to offer uh, something different. And so I'm curious if either of you have comment on that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think for us, given that we we always assume from the beginning that whatever we produce is going to be something not in a concert hall, usually. Like I think, you know, our playground operas, you know, for education that happens, it has to work on a schoolyard. So, you know, the way that we work with the music arranger to think about how can we accommodate, you know, very little potential electrical like plugins and things like that. How do we take, you know, a Rossini opera and turn it into like a spaghetti Western quartet, <laughs> you know, which we did. So I don't know. I think that there is a lot, you know, if thinking outside of the box, like thinking of location of your opera, thinking about who you're trying to reach will, you know, certainly be is something that we always kind of start with when we, you know, reach out to creators to work with us on a new piece is, you know, this is the audience, you know, smashed the Carrie Nation story obviously was about Carrie Nation bashing up bars. So we were going to do it in a bar. And, you know, the composer and the director and the librettist had to think about that environment, that audience, you know, how are we going to make this entertaining? How are we going to be more interesting than, you know, the football game that's on the TV, you know, like things like that mm -hmm. um, really can, and can inform the creative process. So, and for, for me, that's really exciting and fun to explore. And, you know, we work with a variety of artists that do it very differently from each other. So, I don't know. It's it's a whole new world. <laughs> yeah, and Carlene, you've mentioned some of the products that that Houston has already done that are out of the that are new works created by our, uh, generative artists that are not on the on the uh, the traditional model. So, what kind of opportunity are you seeing now for a company like Houston? Well, you know, I I, I don't want to divert from your question, but I'm I'm also. Sure where my, I'm sort of piggybacking off of Anne a little bit, your question yeah. to Anne is that I, I really do feel that the burden of much of this is in the training of, of our next generation of artists and, and people who, and technicians and um, producers and um, managers and whatnot, because we have to be able to think non about ways to be in the art form that isn't traditional. And just something that's not traditional doesn't make it bad. It makes it exciting and forward thinking. But I think that it's very hard to come out of a, you know, out of say as a singer, out of, you know, four years of undergrad and two years of grad school and um, being taught in a traditional model and you come out and there aren't, you know, you, you're not able to respond to the changing world as quickly. And so if schools would allow or think very, think more openly about how they're training this next generation, I think that that will naturally then populate our opera companies and our performing arts institutions because we will have people who are already trained to think more broadly because they've had that opportunity to experiment early on in their formative years. Um, and some people can make, can flip and do that very, very easily. I think we would hope that artists would, but I do fear a little bit that sometimes the, the traditions of our industry sometimes can 
impede that um, ability to to want to go out on that limb, which mm -hmm. it often is. It's often looked at as risk taking, and and risk taking is should be you know should be exciting and fulfilling and mind blowing, right? And oftentimes it's 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 kind of painted around the the notion of fear, and yeah. and and so I think there for me as a former teacher and whatnot, I think very much about you know you have to again you have to get them early, and and let them let them play and let them experiment so that then they have that experience and and confidence to take, to, to make those different kinds of decisions for themselves as they're moving forward. And I think that that will shape the next generation of opera producers and opera singers and opera artists. Yeah, and, and uh, well said. And I think that your point about, about fear, it's actually one of the, as we've made, a number of us have made this point that, that that's the, the, if there's any good news at having things fall apart, the fear that's created actually isn't the, all the fear then is kind of, okay, well, we're afraid. So now we can get to do something new. Yeah. So, so there's really something there. Um, I believe that there have been some questions from our audience that, that uh, maybe Mark would like to pop in. Um, there's Mark. Um, thank you so much, Ed and everyone. I feel so privileged to have heard this conversation for the last hour and a half. I can't tell you how exciting it is. Um, I, I found it interesting that a couple of the questions entered a dichotomy, this idea of investing in new interim strategies while trying to bank money for the return to normalcy, or the use of the word diverting resources from what we do during this interim period. And I think this session has gone a long way to um, answering that question about you know, interim versus core and diverting resources as opposed to investing in what's coming down the road. So I'll just put that one in a box. Um, a couple of quick ones here. One is about the digital divide, which in fact, Ed, is something that you said. And I remember from Michelle's presentation to us in Dallas that in fact, there are probably more people from more diverse backgrounds able to access online content than are able to access our tickets in the Opera House. So that question of access versus restrictive barriers. It's an interesting one. Perhaps Michelle can say a word about that. And of course, there are a lot of questions from our smaller companies wondering about whether a small company can take this on or whether it's only in the realm of the big companies. So I'll leave that with you, the issue of the digital divide and accessibility and the small company approach to this. Okay, Al Michelle, do you wanna start with the digital divide piece? Absolutely. There is an opportunity. This is an opportunity, uh, more so than ever, <laughs> since we're forced into this digital world to actually reach more people. And Mark is absolutely right. I did raise this in the keynote that I did back in Dallas, what, in 2016, I believe it was, yep. where I talked about social media's culture soup, which, by the way, is the name of my podcast. It refers to the access that underrepresented groups have to um, these devices, these phones um, and, um, you know, broadband, not broadband, but, but network access that allows them to do all of the things they couldn't do on a PC like I'm looking at you um, on right now. Um, these things actually bridge that digital divide if you go back to 2008 when the HTC Sense 
came to market. It's an Android phone. Um, the first smartphone that we all knew about in 2007 was the iPhone, but it was very expensive. So when you got that open source, everybody could get online. And then suddenly you have social media with hashtags and, and so forth. Now, this bridges into what I was thinking about saying before, um, the part that Carlene mentioned. When I notice that brands, big companies are trying to not just reach new audiences, but stretch themselves creatively and also in technology. And I don't know if Opera has something like this, and maybe this is something we should talk about as a board, as a national organization, is having someone come on as that creative chief technologist type of person that's completely outside of Opera that could help us to stretch and begin to work with these companies and the markets and see where we can go. And I'm thinking of something as, as out there as like a young guru. Young guru, if you know who he is, he is Jay-Z, Beyonce's, um, Kanye's sound engineer, okay? He knows this stuff. He's a technologist and he's a DJ. <laughs> he knows hip hop. He may know opera, we never know. But he's the type of personality that a Fortune 100 might take on as this person that would usher them into this new era and like reposition them in a way that would get new audiences to see him. Now, a young guru is also the type of person that is very much digitally accessible. So you can get to him on social media. You could, you know, you don't have to go to a JC concert and get backstage stage tickets to see him, but he is very, very um, open and accessible and he has influence on new markets. So that may be one way that we can look at repositioning and rejiggering opera for this new digital age. Okay, uh, Kamala? I wanna piggyback on something that Al Michelle just said because I think it's important to point out specifically the difference between access to smartphones versus laptop computers. Because a lot of the experiences that I'm seeing right now are optimized for laptop, which means that you're necessarily cutting out a certain segment of the population because they can't view it the same way on their phone. So that's something else we have to be mindful of going forward if we want to address this issue. Okay, great. Um, I don't want to lose this, the small company piece, too, that Mark had, had mentioned. Um, I don't know. Does, does anybody have it? Joe, do you want to have some? some well, uh, I, the only comment is that um, in, in the old days, when you had, in order to televise a program, you had to bring in 10, 12 cameras, and it was really expensive, and you needed a distribution partner to get it out there. The, the technology that enables any of us um, to capture audio and video of what we're doing and the internet's disintermediation that enables any institution to put the content out there is a distinct advantage for smaller companies um, relative to what the 20th century. Now it doesn't mean you can just snap a finger and make it happen, but it's within the realm. If you can put on a performance of La Boheme on your stage, you can figure out the technology to distribute it digitally. I have, I have multiple hands. I have Anne, I have Doug, I have Kamala in that order. Yeah, I mean, I, my answer is yes. I think small companies can definitely engage in, in more technology in their operas. Um, and I think that it's, it's it building on what 
smaller companies naturally do, which is create their communities to create something, right? Like this idea of building coalitions. Like here in New York, we have this fabulous New York Opera Alliance of all the small companies that come together and share resources. And thinking broader beyond that within your community, um, as a small company, who else can help you at any place? And, and what I do love to say that like see um, at Opera America that's happening right now is there is a lot more communication between big and small companies than I have ever seen in mm -hmm. 16 years. So I think it's a great opportunity for small companies who are flexible and can pivot and do things that are outside of the box to partner with big companies who might be able to help and support with potentially some seed funding or marketing support, things like that, um, for, for new and inventive things to happen through those collaborations, which are what small companies have been doing with each other since the dawn of time, as far as right. I can tell. Yeah, that's great. So it turns out we're, we're getting pretty close to the end of our hour and a half, but I don't want to lose Doug and Kamala and actually Carlene, I know also has something to say. So let's say that we'll do those three and then we'll, we'll call it quits and just kind of keep that in mind. Okay, I'll, I'll do this very quickly. Um, actually, the internet is the great equalizer, right? Uh, to Joe's point of you needed expensive equipment. Actually, small organizations are among the most creative out there. When you're a really large institution, it's like you know uh, changing the course of a battleship. It's very hard to do. Um, a lot of this technology is cheap and and whatever. So then you say, okay. Um, you know, who's going to actually do this? We don't have the resources to do this. Well, most of the projects that I've done in the last 10 years actually have been virtual pro projects in which we have virtual teams, right? We don't hire anybody full time. We buy pieces of people. We get together, you know, once a month, maybe in person somewhere. Uh, the rest of the time we all work virtually. That allows us to get higher quality of people who we might not be able to afford um, because we couldn't pay them enough to, to have their full attention, but it allows them to be out in the world doing their things and interacting and bringing those things back into the organization. Also to think of them as artistic pro, uh, partners rather than tech partners, right? Um, ideas are really important. Where you get your ideas from, how you develop them, those are really hard. And um, so think about... Um, uh, using resources that you need when you need them and not bringing them on staff. Okay, so uh, if we can do one minute each, Kamala, Carlene. Yes, um, I was, I mean, I'm, I'm basically reiterating the points that Annie and Doug made with the added point that because small companies don't have to deal with real estate, that leads to a lot more flexibility. You're not dealing with rent or maintenance of a building. And so that means you may have resources that can be allocated to this kind of tech partnership. And I also wanted to give a shout out to Opera on Tap, which is a small company and was the first company to do a VR piece. So I don't think that being small is any sort of barrier to engaging with this kind of technology. Great, thanks. Carlene. I agree with Colin. I was going to say too that I feel sometimes that the smaller company actually has the advantage here um, in that they can be more nimble and um, and so I, I fully agree that that they maybe have the upper hand in this. Um, I, I do want to just uh, reiterate, I want to talk, just respond to what El Michelle talked about a little earlier um, in terms of the emotional awareness and empathy, um, something that we are, we value very, very much here at HGO Co. And, and, but it, it thought, got me to think about 
the idea that in order to have empathy, you need to have self-awareness. You need to be able to man. You need to be able to manage your emotions, and you need, and then you can be socially aware. And I think this all ties into the ideas that we want to be. We want to connect to one another. We want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And we are really at a point where we can make a great leap forward in doing so. And so it's. I think it's just. Even though it's a terribly nerving time, it's also exciting, and I feel privileged to be living and aware during this time. Well, it's great to end on excitement. That is the best place to end. Um, so, uh, Mark, I believe that you can finish us up here. Well, I'm going to start by thanking you, Ed, for leading an absolutely inspiring session. This was a remarkable discussion. I'm, I'm so grateful to you. I want to thank. El Michelle for her contributions as always. Kamala, Joe Kluger had to jump off at one at, at, at half past the hour. And Hyatt, thank you for coming into the panel at the last minute. Carlene, always good to see you. And Doug McLennan, you started us off on Monday. And wow, what you've gotten started in terms of discussion across the field. I'm getting emails and texts about how valuable this discussion has been. So we have a long way to go from here. To all of you, I just say a huge thank you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I just want to let everyone know about next week's lineup. Uh, Monday, of course, is Memorial Day, so our pre-panel presentation will take place on Tuesday, that's the 26th, at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. That's with Nina Simone, who's the CEO at The Culture Podcast is a production of No Size Communication, LLC. The Culture Soup Podcast is a registered trademark of No Silos Communications, LLC. Mm-hmm.